As you hear sounds coming up in your head, thoughts, you simply listen to them as part of the general noise going on, just as you would be listening to the sound of my voice, or just as you would be listening to cars going by, or to birds chattering outside the window. So look at your own thoughts as just noises. This is Billy Hansen, and welcome to another episode of Sauce Talk, a podcast about sports and the mind and trying to live well in general. This podcast is an interview with Barry Gillespie. Barry is a woodworker, painter, and meditation teacher in Boulder, Colorado. Barry is my primary meditation teacher, and I've sat a number of retreats with Barry, some day-long retreats and a a couple extended silent retreats, and I highly recommend him as a teacher. He has a great meditation course on Thursday evenings. I recommend you check out his teachings And you can find the link to his teaching schedule and his other articles and resources in the show notes to this episode below. In this interview, I asked Barry about how he was introduced to contemplative and spiritual practice. Uh, We talk about the practice of renunciation and the difference between morality and virtue, the importance of a formal disciplined practice and and the boundaries between that disciplined practice and life in general. We talk about monasticism in contrast with being a quote-unquote householder from the Buddhist perspective and Barry's opinion on how to make progress and cultivate uh, spiritual growth or you know progress in the practice even in the midst of a busy householder life. And that relates to our conversation about renunciation as well. We talk about abusive meditation teachers and why that might be such an issue in so many communities and with so many teachers. And we talk about psychedelics and Barry's experience and opinion on the utility of psychedelics on a spiritual path. And then we finish by talking about some practical meditation advice. I asked Barry about some tips for my own practice. So it was a pleasure speaking with Barry, and I'm really grateful that he took the time to come back on the podcast. Without further delay, here is Barry Gillespie. Gillespie, thank you for coming back on the podcast. I'm happy to be here, Billy. So the last time we spoke, we it was the pandemic was breaking, and we were talking about uh, thoughts on how to uh, skillfully transition into self isolation or social distancing and quarantine. And a lot has happened since then. I've uh, been on a retreat with you since then, and the pandemic is still going on, but it's different than it was before. In today's conversation, I want to focus more on just general ideas around your philosophy and the Buddhist philosophy and practice. And I have a list of questions here and we'll see how many we get through. The first question I have for you is how you got into contemplative or spiritual practice in the first place. Could you describe your introduction to contemplative practice and what it first looked like when you got started? <laughs> I mean, there's, it's been, I've gone through a lot of phases of practice, basically. Um, 
I mean, initially, back in the 60s, early 70s, I was like your typical hippie guy and was interested in all things that were cool and interesting. And, and I explored a large number of different teachings and forms of practice and that sort of thing. Uh, and then I guess it'd be around 78, 79. So that's like, what, 43 years ago. Um, I became uh, connected to a teacher named Swami Vishnu Devananda, who was a traditional Hindu yoga teacher, but it was more than just the physical yoga. This was like all of the philosophical ideas, which included meditation practice. And um, so that's how I started. Um, and uh, that lasted for, for 15 years. And then he passed away and I was sort of like, oh, what do I do now? And someone gave me a book or suggested I read a book called The Experience of Insight by Joseph Goldstein. This is uh, 2002, I suppose. And I eventually, oh, okay, I, should, I got the book and I read the book and I said, oh, this is what I've actually been looking for all this time. Um, and um, went off and started practicing in this Theravada Buddhist tradition that I have been practicing in and teaching in since then. So almost 20 years now. Great. And what do you think it was, if you can think back to the time about the book or about that form of teaching or practice that resonated with you so deeply right when you discovered it? Uh, well, two things. One is the, the previous thing with the, which, with Swami Vishnu Devananda was very sort of culturally specific. I mean, you, when you were a student of Swami's you had to sort of become sort of Hindu in a way. And at the same time, you know, certain cultural values had to be adopted. And what I liked about Joseph's, what Joseph said in that book was that it just seemed really clear that this wasn't what was going on in the Western Buddhist community, at least that portion of it, the, the, the Inside Meditation Society, Spirit Rock, Axis of simple Theravada teaching. We have to remember that Theravadins are basically the, the Quakers of the Buddhist world. So it's like really focused very clearly on practice. Just do the practice. Here's what the Buddha said. See if you can practice this. And also um, it was really focused on silence, which I always had a strong attraction to. And it spent time in silence in, in former times. So the combination of those things, um, it's simplicity, it's lack of cultural overlay, um, made me quite comfortable. And I went, oh, it just made me feel, feel quite comfortable. Mm. Nice. And then you started sitting retreats and practicing diligently after that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I sat my first retreat in this tradition in 2003. Okay. I'm actually curious uh, about the first time you decided to sit a long retreat, maybe like three weeks or a month or however that long that first really extended one was, because I've been considering doing one of those myself one of these years. What was the experience like leaving knowing you were going to be in silence for a month, say? 
scary, <laughs> nervous making, <laughs> uh, exciting, all at the same time. Um, I was, I felt really ready. At that point, I'd sat three 10-day retreats in this tradition. Mm. And I felt like, okay, I need to go deeper. I need to sort of go go deeper into the process. And it was quite clear to me that the way to do that, or at least for me, was to sit longer retreats. Mm. And so I went away and sat that first month-long retreat, which was pretty chaotic. Um, I had moments of like falling completely to pieces and moments of clear, wonderful insight and everything in between. So it was interesting, but it was, uh, for me, uh, extremely useful in terms of my life and my practice. And, um, I did that same, that was a February retreat at Sphere Rock. And I did that for the next four, four years. So I did five years in a row. I did that, that month. And then I started, things started changing, but I did a lot more long sits after that, but I jumped Mm -hmm. in with both feet, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So in trying to think about preparing for this conversation, I took some notes down of just things that stuck out to me from your Dharma talks on retreat. I want to ask a few questions that I've been meaning to ask you anyway, so we can do it here, but one of the topics that I want to ask you about is renunciation. And obviously, well, obviously to us, people who've been on retreat, um, retreat is a very extreme form of renunciation where you simplify your life totally into basically just practicing all day long, only taking what's offered, et cetera. I'm curious, just as at a high level to begin with, what does renunciation mean from a Buddhist perspective? Uh, Basically, what renunciation always means, whether it's a Buddhist perspective or any other tradition for that matter, it means you sort of look at your life and you go, here's something I don't need to do or don't need to do so much, so I have more time to practice. Mm. And the thing about renunciation is it sort of goes against the cultural norm. I mean, our culture basically tells us, you know, indulge yourself, do whatever you can that feels good. And if it doesn't feel good, it doesn't feel make you, you know, it doesn't, it isn't cool. Don't do it. You know, avoid it. Mm. And renunciation is sort of the opposite of that in some ways. Um, There's a classic little story I like to tell about renunciation where, um, you know, it's one of those cartoons where a guy's sort of climbing up to the top of a mountain and there's a holy man sitting in front of a cave. And um, the, the guy says to the holy man, uh, you know, what can I do to, um, you know, be become enlightened? And, and the holy man says, oh, practice renunciation. And the guy sort of looks at the holy man and he sort of looks around and he says, uh, is there anyone else up here I can talk to? <laughs> and that's <laughs> and that's the, the cultural attitude towards renunciation. But I mm-hmm. think actually renunciation is very freeing because it allows you to just look at your life, go, okay, 
I don't need to, I still, I'm still going to read the New York Times, but I'm not going to read it page to page anymore. I'll just spend, you know, maybe half an hour a day reading the New York Times. So I, and that other half hour, I know time to practice more mm. and so on. So you sort of look at, so at the simplest level, it just means rearranging your life to have more time for practice. And then in its extreme, I mean, that's one edge of it. And that's just sort of in daily life. You know, if you want to go to the other edge, you become monastic and you renounce everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, basically, monastic life, at least in this tradition, is extremely simple. Uh, you know, and um, that doesn't appeal to me, to be honest with you. But that's <laughs> so that's so. So this this range of what renunciation means. Mm -hmm. The other thing about renunciation is we have to be very careful with it because it's very easy to fall into this space of you know overdoing it you know uh, I'm gonna renounce everything and I'm not gonna you know and I'm gonna sort of and give up everything and just practice all the time and that's it I'm not gonna you know the rest of my life is over I'm just gonna be this diligent person who practices all the time mm. and, and that's for most people, quite unrealistic. And what ha always happens is there's maybe a period of time where you know, they'll, they'll go through weeks or maybe even months of living that way. And then there's this reaction to it, the, the boomerang effect. And, and people go quite crazy and wild sometimes in reaction to the having restrained themselves too much. Mm. So it's like this delicate balance where we all find our own limits. And we all find at different times in our life and it just like, you know, in the winter, I probably renounce a little bit more in the winter than I do in the summer because in the summer, there's always cool things I like to do. <laughs> and in the winter, it's cold and I'm inside anyway, so I can have more time for practice and study. You know, so it's like we, we have to sort of not be rigid in any way, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, I love that. Is that, do you have any advice or thoughts about actually practicing that because i know that's something i've experienced and it's another thing that's that i notice quite a bit in the culture is you you, you try to go from you see this a lot in diets or like fad diets right you go from yeah. eating whatever you want pretty much to i'm going to be a raw vegan starting monday but this yeah, weekend yeah. i'm going to keep eating all the pizza until then or like yeah. you know workout regimens or and I've felt that too in meditation where I've sketched out a very rigid plan for myself where it's going to be, you know, an hour in the morning and an hour after work and a mini retreat on, you know, all of this stuff that I have planned. And then I feel uh, that's happened to me too, where the the rigidity of it or not living up to the the rules that I set can almost discourage as much practice as if I would, I, I would have practiced more if I had just sat once for 20 minutes instead of just feeling like I was going to fail if I didn't live up to the plan. Right. So do you have any more thoughts about navigating that and maybe being mindful of it in yourself when it arises? One of the things I learned from my original teacher, Swami Vishnu Devananda is he had this whole thing about um, new year's resolutions mm. and that being that, that sort of time of year. And then this, to be honest with you, it could apply to any time. You can take resolutions anytime, just New Year's is the sort of the traditional thing. 
And what he encouraged us to do was do two things. One is like, look at where we are right now with our practice. You know, I'm I'm sitting for half an hour or 45 minutes once a day and blah, 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 whatever your practice happens to be, your formal practice and your practice in the world for that matter. Mm. And then think, okay, how much more can I realistically increase it? But not to the extreme, like you said, like, oh, I'm going to go from half an hour once a day to two, an hour twice a day. Well, that's probably too big a jump. So you mm-hmm. you set, you take the res- you know, take a resolve to sort of do more and probably set that goal to be a little bit more than you think you can actually do. So you got to push your edge a little bit. Otherwise, nothing ever, do, you know, it's good to be to push your edge a little bit. Mm. And then, uh, then understand that some days it ain't going to happen for whatever reason. You know, something happens at work or your partner's not feeling well or you're just feeling grumpy that day and you don't quite meet that, that standard you set. And then you have to go, and that's okay. I'm going to just start again because this practice is really all this practice is about is starting again over and over and over. I mean, every day you get up and you start again. It's not like, oh, well, I didn't do it this time. So that's it, which is what often happens with people in resolutions. You know, there's that mm-hmm. joke about, you know, what people resolve in, you know, make their New Year's resolutions. And by February, most people have totally forgotten what they resolved, right? Um, yeah. I used to run a yoga studio and we always had this joke about that the January classes were always going to be huge. And by middle of February, well, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just the way things are. And you say, people who run gyms, they say exactly the same thing. They see this big spurt of people who are really, and they've just, they've overcommitted themselves. And then they fall back into whatever they were before. Mm. Yeah. So it's that, that balance taking add something make it a little bit difficult but not too difficult taking a quick break from the conversation to thank you for listening to the podcast I really appreciate it when people reach out to me who have listened with comments or feedback or suggestions so feel free to reach out and say hi my new book is available it's called Harder Than I Thought Easier Than I Feared, with a subtitle, Sports, Anxiety, and the Power of Meditation. And I hope that it's a great resource for struggling athletes specifically. So if you are that person, or if you happen to know of a committed athlete who might be going through a difficult time, you should consider picking up a copy. The book is about my own athletic experience from youth through college athletics and how the practice of meditation and working with a sports psychologist helped me recover from some mental difficulties that I faced as a college sophomore. And so I think the book will be especially useful for struggling athletes, but it might be of interest to any athlete and coaches and parents as well, and even those who are just meditators who want to see how the practice might might relate to um, athletics. Other ways to support me in the show is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you want to stay in contact with my work, you should subscribe to my newsletter. 
which you can find at billyhanson.net forward slash newsletter. Thank you again. And now back to the conversation with Barry Gillespie. So how does renunciation relate to possessions? Uh, I know we've, we talked about activities and prioritizing tasks and making more time yeah. to practice, but does it also relate to the things you own or purchase? Sure. I mean, basically, you know, in, in, a, in monastic vows, they have this uh, vow where they take only what is offered, which is like absolutely having no possessions. I mean, really, in, the, in this tradition, monastics have a robe and a bowl, and they go around and they get their meal from whoever gives them something. Well, but what is, how does that translate into householders, like people like you and me who live in the world and have jobs and partners and houses and all that sort of stuff? I think that it translates into not having more stuff than you need. You know, it's like we don't, you know, you've got a working cell phone and then the new iPhone 37A comes up, right? We got to get that right away because it's so cool and it's better than the other one. And you go, no, wait a second, this cell phone I have works just fine. Mm. You know, and so it's like looking at, at, at your impulses to get more stuff and editing them in a sense. Like going, well, I don't really need that. Mm. You know, I mean, and, and sometimes we do really need things like, you know, you work with computers, so you need equipment and, and, and you get stuff that you need to do what you do. And that's perfectly fine. It's like I, I worked for a long time as a carpenter and I have lots of nice tools, but I don't go and go to the hardware store and go, oh, look at that cool tool. I think I'll get that, too. I, I only have one of those. I don't need another one. Mm-hmm. So it's like if that's res- I don't know whether that's renunciation or restraint, but they're, those two words are very closely related, I think. It's just like going, I don't need all this stuff. The thing is, the thing about having stuff, lots of stuff, is that then you have to pay for all that stuff, which means you have to work a lot more to make the money to pay the taxes on the money you're making then and you can pay for the stuff. And that means you don't have as much time for practice. You're, mm. you're, you're buried in that pile of money you have to make to keep all this stuff. So it's, mm. it's, it's a fine line. You know? And I'm not saying you shouldn't have stuff. I have, you know, I've got six different power saws, because, but I need, you know, for the work I was <laughs> doing, I actually needed six different power saws. You know? Yeah. So it's, it's not that you shouldn't have stuff. It's just that you have to look at it and go, I don't need any more of that. Mm. I don't, you know, uh, I feel really strongly with that in terms of clothes. My clothes are very utilitarian, basic, you know, they keep me warm, they keep me dry. But if they get look a little worn or a little tired, or I don't know, if I, I'm sure I'm not at all fashionable, mm. but so what? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like that play of, uh, once again, our culture says, no, no. Uh, you know, I, I used to, <laughs> in my dark past, I was uh, in public relations and, and in marketing, one of my jobs I had. And the whole idea of having an, an ad was to say, basically a good ad said, if you don't have this, you're not cool enough, smart enough, sexy enough good enough 
That's what our culture keeps telling us thousands of times a week. Mm-hmm. And we have to sort of go, no, I don't believe any of that. I don't believe that cultural teaching. I don't need that stuff. Because mm. then I have more freedom to do what I want to do, which might be, you know, practice and might also be, oh, now I, I can, in the middle of the week, I can go hike up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Because I don't have to be at work all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Something that, that's related to that, I think, that you've brought up before is your emphasis on not having debt or too much debt or yeah. ideally yeah. any debt at all. Can you yeah. talk a bit about you what you how you think about debt as it relates to practice and life in general? There's uh, there's this place in this in the sutta where the buddha talks about uh, the things householders the four things the householders need to be happy mm. and, and and it's a quite interesting list actually because the first one was to have a uh, a job with some way of making enough money to live well mm-hmm. you know so it's not like having a job and making money is bad in fact it's for a householder the natural thing to do Mm. Then, then the second thing on that list was, and then to spend that money on yourself and your family and on doing the good deeds, like taking care of people who don't have as much money. Mm. So being generous with that money that you have. And then the third one was have no debt. And the fourth one was to lead a virtuous life. Those were the four things that a householder needs to have a happy life. But have no debt. I mean, think about debt. As soon as you have debt, now you're tied to that debt. You have to then pay it off. You know, and uh, so that's one side of it. You know, on, on the other side of it is if you do go into debt, then do whatever you can to pay it off as quickly as you can. Um, you know, which means, oh, I've got this, you know, for instance, the mortgage. I mean, it, I had a mortgage once upon a time. Uh, mm-hmm. And there was always these choices that would come up. Like, well, I can either take this extra piece of money I have and go on a vacation someplace and have a wonderful exotic vacation someplace. Or I can make a balloon payment on my mortgage and reduce the term of the mortgage that way. And I always made the balloon payments. So for a while, I just lived in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that was like, that's where, if I have extra money, that's where it's going to go so I can get out of debt. Because once you got out of debt, wow, it's just a totally different life. You don't have to. I've been out of debt now for 30 years, <laughs> more than 30 years, probably. Well, maybe it's 30 years. And it's like, it's a different life when you don't have debt. Mm. It yeah. really frees you. Yeah. From that need to always be making that money and maybe doing a job that isn't the greatest job sometimes, or maybe it is a great job. I have wonderful work that I used to do, but it's not how I want to spend my life. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I imagine there's also you know, a psychological aspect while you're practicing, knowing that you actually have the time to spend in yeah. practice or in service and you don't have these payments or bills or stresses 
piling up. I don't think the stress would ever go away completely, but um, having no debt, or at least making the the choice, the deliberate choice to, it is, I guess, part of renunciation of choosing time to practice freedom to, you know, do what you want rather than new fancy things or experiences. And um, yeah, I mean, that's something that, sorry, go ahead. No, that's one that's so cultural too. what you were saying. It's like, you know, you can, you know, there's this idea that if you go on this great vacation someplace, it's going to be so much fun and it's going to change your life. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I mean, be happy. Have, have a little mini vacation at home. Yeah. I mean, it's not, and not the vacations are wrong, but once again, you can have a, you know, a $10,000 vacation, or you can have a $500 vacation. And in both mm-hmm. cases, you're probably going to have as good a time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Rebecca and I have talked about that, about, you know, there are places that on the map that we want, we'd like to go, you know, and I do want to go to these places eventually like Costa Rica or Switzerland or, but there's places that basically in our backyard, like Utah and Wyoming yeah. and other places in Colorado, which people from Switzerland travel here to go see that we mm. haven't gone to yet. So it's kind of, we've, uh, we've been talking yeah. about ex- exploring some of those places first and certainly not quite as expensive of a trip to, to go do a weekend in Moab or something. But yeah, we, um, that's one thing we've done a lot of is we keep going, Oh wait, here's a face in California or, or I'll pardon me in Colorado that we've mm. never been to. And we'll read about it and we'll go there for a weekend or a long weekend or a four day vacation. And it's great. It's a great vacation. And it's like, oh, I spend a little bit of money to stay in a nice hot spring hotel for a day or something, you know, because mm-hmm. it's fun. But that's it. And then we, we drive there and back. So there's no another airplane stuff. I mean, of course, for the last couple of years, we haven't even done that. But I mean, in general, that was our pattern is to go and explore different parts of things. And Colorado's got so many different climates and different, you know, different kinds of structures of landscape. It's incredible. I mean, you go out into the plains in Colorado and there's amazing things out there that we, that we would never go to if we didn't consciously choose to go there and have a great time. Definitely. That was one thing about the pandemic that was interesting to notice was um, cause there is some of the, the primary examples in my world or in my generation is kind of the Instagram fear of missing out that, that takes place where mm. everything you see on your feed is somebody having a lot more fun than you are with filters that make them look great and all of this stuff. And so there's this, this kind of pressure that like, if you're not at Coachella or if you're not at, um, you know, whatever the 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 thing is that weekend the music festival the burning or even man. burning man yeah <laughs> or even some of the the nature stuff like if you're not underneath a spectacular waterfall then you you haven't really used your your weekend right um yeah. and a lot of that went away during the first lockdown that first year of covid where it was not only was it acceptable but it was actually you know the right thing to do to to calm down a lot of that and I did miss the social aspect and I missed the, you know, lockdown was hard for a number of reasons, but I, the, the kind of evaporation of FOMO was something really nice about it. And then after our vaccines, when 
the it felt for a few months like that was going to be the end. <laughs> um, yeah. It was we were back in the world, and all of a sudden, I remember talking to Rebecca, and it was we had we were going to we were reschedule our trip to New York. We had weddings in L.A. We had all these things hit the calendar all at once. And as we were going through them, I was like, man, I kind of miss some of the aspects of lockdown life of how simple, how simple it was. We work and we go for walks in the evenings and on the weekends we actually rest because we don't have to travel anywhere. And so that's been something I've been trying to integrate back into life as it slowly comes back to normal, if it ever does, but um, is to not, consciously not overbook my life in the ways that I was doing pre-COVID and then right after the vaccines. I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on all that. Yeah, I, I had uh, a similar experience in that. Um, I, in the fall, I had, you know, I taught a retreat. And then three days after the retreat, I went, went and sat a retreat. So I had to sort of schedule my life and was like busy packing and unpacking and making sure that, you know, got really busy. Uh, then of course I went, went on retreat for three weeks and did nothing but sit for three weeks. But then I came home and then there was a wedding up in Canada and I had to deal with getting into Canada and getting tested and blah, 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 blah. And it was like, I realized I'd let my life get really sort of frantic because I could, I was, it was like, okay to do this now. Um, following the rules of you know being tested and being vaccinated and boosted and all that sort of stuff. It's, so it's yeah. really, and I'm right now I'm like, oh, this is kind of nice. This period of time in my life right now, where I sort of I've stepped back again and you know, I'm busy teaching and preparing for things I'm going to do next year and that sort of stuff. But I'm not super busy, mm. and uh, I'm I'm quite enjoying not being super busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. So the fourth piece of the the householder, the advice for householders and how they can be happy was living a virtuous life. Yeah. And one of the notes that I took down was something that resonated with me or stuck with me from one of your Dharma talks on retreat, which was, and I, I might be, I might not have the wording correct, so you can you can clean this up, but the difference between virtue and morality, uh-huh. you had this this example of morality can be or or sometimes is like pointing the finger at you and saying do this don't do this kind of like a rule-based system whereas virtue is and you pointed you just said head in this direction and see what happens and you kind of have to figure it out on your own sort of and so let me know how close i got with that description you you, you were quite close okay morality isn't just a finger pointing it's a wagging finger like you bad <laughs> you know do this or else you know morality has as its basis fear mm. you know if you don't do this you're going to you know be burned in hell be ostracized be considered a bad person be considered a fallen person blah 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 you know all those things different ways of saying that Mm. and so it's the whole thing is it it makes you live this in within these rules out of fear and fear is a really unwholesome unhealthy emotional state Mm. whereas virtue basically says here's these guidelines that you're going to try but virtue is a practice you have to practice virtue Mm-hmm. And understand that sometimes, just like any other form of practice, 
you're going to, as I was talking about earlier, sometimes you're going to succeed. Sometimes you're going to be really virtuous for a while, and then you're going to do something or say something. Then, and you, then you whack your forehead and go, "Oh God, how could I possibly have done that?" <laughs> yeah, and that's okay. And that's the thing. But part of it is like because it's a practice as opposed to a hard and fast rule. We understand that as human beings, we're not always going to be perfect. Mm. You know, whereas morality insists you're perfect in this quite sometimes rigid way. And if you're not, there's something wrong with you. And that mm. creates fear, it creates guilt, you know, remorse. I mean, there's all the unwholesome mind states that arise out of trying to fit into that definition of good. Mm. That's why that's the big difference between between morality and virtue. Virtue is like, here's these guidelines, you know, try not to harm anyone else, try not to overconsume, you know, etc. Mm-hmm. See if you can do what you can to consciously choose to practice these virtues. But don't beat yourself up when sometimes you fall off the wagon or whatever you want, however you want to describe it. Mm. when you're not perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked that message. And so just so I understand it correctly, like it's one of the virtues of being honest. Um, yeah. So you rather than I'm going to be honest from this day forward and never will I lie or deceive again. And then as soon as you do, whether consciously or accidentally, um, deceive or, or speak, say something that's not truthful. You don't, you might feel very guilty or chastise yourself. Whereas on the virtuous side, it's like, I'm going to make a commitment to be honest and you just be a, a little bit mindful of, okay, I, that wasn't quite true. What I said there, you know, a couple hours ago, and I'm going to practice and notice that and try to improve in the future. Is that an example that, that yeah, resonates? Yeah, and, and also the other part of that is, you know, I just said something that was really hurtful to somebody else, for instance. Mm-hmm. Now I have to apologize. Mm. And which is part of being virtuous is to accept your imperfections and be open about it. And not yeah. feel like, oh, now I have to, you know, hide this stuff from because other people won't think I'm good. No, no. Mm. Sometimes I mess up and sometimes I need to apologize or ask for forgiveness. And that's all part of being virtuous, that Mm -hmm. we're accepting our imperfections and then not being able, not being afraid to let other people see our imperfections. Yeah. That's, that's sometimes the hard part. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Another question I had, this is not quite related. We're bouncing around a little bit, but it's just the, the traditional, maybe there isn't a traditional, but there's the difference between like a householder and somebody who takes a monastic path. Was that something that was just in the culture that there needed to be householders and there needed to be people who went into more renunciation and that they had to support each other. And I guess where this questions come from is, you know, sometimes I've spoken to you about this, but like I come off retreat and develop this deep level of concentration and focus and clarity. And then after about 10 or 15 days being back in the, in the world, I sometimes get frustrated that a lot of 
what felt like progress or depth has succumbed to distraction back in daily life. And so sometimes I wonder, okay, well, am I ever going to make the kind of progress that I want to make as a quote unquote householder living out in the world? So I'm, it's kind of all over the place here, but I'm wondering how you think about the relationship between being a householder and making deep progress and how traditionally the relationship between householders and people who took a monastic path was set up. Does that question make sense? Yeah. Yes. Well, there's several questions there, but that's okay. (laughs) Okay. First of all, the tradition was, um, and this wasn't, this wasn't unique to Buddhism where renunciates, you know, monastics, both male and female, um, basically had very strict rules they followed. Like in, in the Theravada tradition, you know, uh, the monks basically, amongst the nuns basically, couldn't um, have touch money, let alone have any money. They couldn't um, grow food. They couldn't um, c- carry food more than five miles or something like that. Like there's like quite strict. So they were totally dependent on the householder population around them. So they couldn't get uppity which is, you know, in some traditions uh, in other cultures, um, the monastics become very powerful. You know, they have their own armies. And I mean, it's like not a, you wonder how they could call themselves monastics almost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so, they, and they would, you know, uh, and, and, but at the same time, the monastics were um, a resource for the householders in that they would, um, you know, take care of marriages and take care of uh, anybody who was sick and take care of, you know, funerals and take care of advice. And um, it was also common for a householder to come to the monastery or the, the Wat or whatever it was called uh, for a day and take vows for a day. And typically it'd be like full moon day, new moon days, there'd be special times on the, you know, the calendar in in that culture where they would come in for just for that day, they would take full vows and practice. And then they would go back and, you know, because they had to, they had, you know, family and kids and, you know, a house to take care of and fields to thing and cows to milk and all the things people had to do. Um, So there was, there was some interplay between those two. Um, but that was, it was pretty clear that there was monastics and there was householders and householders, their main duty was to support the monastics. Hmm. Now this tradition has come to the West. Uh, and though there are monastics in the West, there's not very many. And the primary teaching of this tradition is now totally all done by householders. Mm, yeah. Um, and um, so the, the flavor of it has changed in that sense. Mm. So that's the, the historical idea of that. Uh, now, maybe you should ask me another part of your question again, because I'm trying to remember exactly where we were going. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, no, that, that was that's helpful. And um, second part was, so I we spoke about this, but I was on retreat with you and oh, okay, yeah. came off retreat and then 
was frustrated in the weeks that followed at the lack of depth in practice and the amount of distraction in my life as compared to, you know, the last few days on that retreat. So just um, as a householder, how you think about depth and progress, knowing that your life is by definition going to be more busy and cluttered than if you were to to become a monastic, say. Yes. Um, hmm. Um, On one level, all I have to say is, well, that's life. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, um, (laughs) it's true. It's like we, the thing about, I mean, I, I, there's an analogy I like to use, okay? Um, daily practice, you know, is like putting gas in your car. Mm-hmm. You know, going on a day-long retreat is maybe like doing an oil change. You know, mm-hmm. going on a long retreat is an engine overhaul. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so it's like um, you, more goes on, more happens as you take more space to practice. But... In the end, it, we always go back to here I am living this life in the world. Um, and my focus has to be in when I'm living out here in the world, I'm not on retreat, to being how can I put this practice, my understanding of the Buddhist teachings, into practice in my daily life? Mm. And, and, and not separate life from practice. Mm. which is what we always do There's like practice. And then there's like life, which is like this stuff I have to do. But how can I, you know, by consciously practicing virtue, for instance, and we just, which you just talked about, how can I make that more, more higher up on the level of things I'm going to pay attention to? Because here I am living in the world where I'm interacting with people all the time and where leading a virtuous life is way important. So I can shift my emphasis. So that that's one thing. Number two, and this is um, something you and I have talked about before, is you have this tendency to judge yourself, and judging ourselves is never helpful. It's like, oh, there's something wrong now that I don't have that depth that I had when I was on retreat. Yeah, what a surprise! You know, <laughs> without. And, and we don't, we can't fall into that judging mind. You know, we can say, okay, now I'm going to do what I can to go on another retreat. Because this practice is very cumulative. The more, and this is from my own experience, the more we go on retreat, the more time we spend in retreat over a long period of time, the deeper our practice goes. And also, and this is the, the quite interesting for me, is the difference in my mind state when I'm on retreat and when I'm not on retreat, the difference between those two gets smaller. Mm. It's like there's less of that jarring experience you had when you came back from retreat. That, that It's not as jarring. It's always different, but it's not like, wow, this is like totally different. It's like, oh, yeah, I can, you, because you're you with accumulate cumulative practice, you you you're actually literally shifting how you react to things in the world and how you deal with the world, and it's less jarring 
That's different than your mind staying on, on retreat. There's a difference that you experience. Hmm. Is yeah. that helpful? No, it is helpful. Yeah. It's something I'll have to just keep practicing, but it's encouraging what you said at the end was that if, you know, if you keep going on retreat, you keep practicing in your daily life, that the gap will start to shrink between how you feel in your best moment on retreat versus, you know, when you're, it's 4 PM and you've been looking at code all day and then you check Twitter and <laughs> that, that kind of thing. And then you have to go home and make dinner. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's kind of random. Have you read the brothers Karamazov by chance? No. Oh, okay. There's Sorry. a, there's a, I'm reading it now and it's, it's just interesting to see that, you know, they're Christians in the book. This is 18th century, sorry, 19th century Russia. And one of the main characters, Alyosha, is uh, at the monastery and he's taking, you know, planning to take a life of renunciation. And his teacher, or they call him an elder, Zosima, encourages him as he's dying to go out in the world and wants him to get married and be a, out in the world. And so there's, it was interesting to read in that book that there was similar tradition and decision-making and friction between the two lives in that tradition, as well as um, what I've learned from you in, in Theravada Buddhism. That doesn't surprise me at all, um, because pretty much every tradition has monasticism in some form. Um, sometimes it's stricter, sometimes it's more formal, sometimes it's less so. And to be a monastic is, I think it takes a pretty special character. <laughs> it isn't, I, I don't think, you know, it's like monasticism is like a really difficult choice to make. And it's something that only maybe a few people should ever do. And and when you know monasticism is in this in essence forced on people who want to live in, in a certain community, that's when craziness a lot of time happens. I mean, just look. I mean, you know, it, it, I I have to be careful here, but just look at what's going on and has been going on for years now in the Catholic Church, yeah. where you know the part of the rules for a priest was they had to you know be celibate. And for most of them, it didn't work. A lot of them, it didn't work at all. And it came out in all kinds of weird ways. And that's right. what happens when people who aren't suited to the strictness of monastic life become monastics anyway, out of some idealistic idea of how things are going to be and how their whole character is going to change and everything's going to be wonderful. And then, you know, real life emerges instead. Yeah. Uh, related to the, the misbehavior of or abuse of Catholic priests, I had a question here that I was wondering if we'd get to, but I'm just curious what your thought is on so many renowned meditation teachers who end up harming their students. And do you, do you have any thoughts on why that's a pattern and what potentially to look out for when going on the meditative path? I realize that's a big question, but... I don't yeah. think I've ever asked you that before. No, that's, it's a very good question. Um, and basically, I think the issue is often those teachers 
have been have taken renunciation vows and they couldn't live up to them, but they felt like they had to present to the external world as if they were still renunciates. Mm. But then, and, and, and because they had to operate in secret, in a sense, um, doing things that were harmful because it would destroy their image. Um, and that's happened over and over and over and over and over again. And all every tradition is not not just Catholic priests. Let me tell you. And you go to any uh, any uh, yoga place or any sort of Buddhist place or anything. It's it's quite a sad to say common occurrence because people present themselves as being a certain way, but they can't live up to that on in their day to day life. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's what causes the harm because people mm-hmm. have this image of them as one thing. And then they discover at some point, Oh my God, this guy who says he's been this celibate monk, celibate monk all this time. It's actually whatever. You know? He's been telling everybody they should be celibate and he hasn't been celibate himself. For instance, I mean, that's one case I know. Yeah. Of. Um, yeah. And it's that's, <clears throat> Going way back to when, when you asked me about what I like about the tradition that I am part of and practice in, number one, most of the teachers are householders, so that's less likely to be a problem. Hmm. But also, uh, traditionally, on any longer retreat, um, multiple teachers, and um, so that there's not one teacher that everybody sort of Oh, I have to bow down and obey this teacher. There's not that is like t- very, very strongly dis- discouraged in the Western Theravadan tradition. Uh, it's just not proper. Um, mm. You know, uh, I and I'm uh, I very, I'm trying. To, I always try to be very careful when I'm t- teaching to say to people, "Well, this is just what I've learned and what I think," but you know. Figure this, you have to figure this out for yourself, which is what the Buddha said. I mean, the Buddha said over and over and over again, you know, in the end, the only thing you know that's true is what you've experienced yourself. Everything else is just stuff that's happening that, that's other people's ideas. You know, you have to figure this out for yourself and do it yourself. No one can do it for you. You know, no one can touch you with a magic peacock feather and now you're enlightened. It ain't going to happen. Sorry. Yeah. And so... Th- do you think something, some of it has to do with the power dynamic of, because I guess what I'm curious about oh, is yeah. some of these it, teachers it, have incredible meditative insight and they've gone, they're obviously not just completely fraudulent in meditation. So they've really done, at least some of them who have ended up abusing students really are terrific meditators, if that's even a thing, but then they end up doing that. They, they end up misbehaving. Do you think it it has to do with that dynamic of being, the power gets to their head anyway because they have all of these adoring students and they think they have these degrees of freedom that quote unquote normal folks don't. I'm just curious. Yeah, the, that there's that. There's also um, vestiges of patriarchy very deeply embedded in a lot of those problems because a lot of those teachers who have been abusive have been male. Yeah. And that's, all, yeah. we can't deny that for one second. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and also, um, there's a, 
it's a, been a, a cultural phenomenon to a certain extent in that, um, you know, many of these teachers who uh, have come from, you know, Tibet or India or Japan lived in a culture where their role and how they were supposed to act was very, very strictly controlled and defined. And they came to the West and things were totally different. You know, um, you know, people dressed differently, they spoke differently, they acted differently, and they got sort of seduced by the easiness of the culture. Mm. And, 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 didn't follow their practice that which was much easier for them to follow within the strictures of their original culture. Mm-hmm. And that's also being part of the problem, I think. Interesting. Yeah. I remember watching that documentary on Osho and the Rajneeshis and yeah. that he had accumulated, I think over a hundred Bentleys for himself. Oh, <laughs> <wow>. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And but also seemed like paradoxically, it was like he had what seemed like smart things to say, and he was really helping people. So it's just a really interesting dynamic. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like the, all, all these teachers have there's value, but every one of them, including me, <laughs> I want to make that very clear, including me, you have to take everything they say. I say with a grain of salt and go, yeah, but I have to know that for myself. I, I understand what he's saying now. And he's maybe pointing in the direction of how can I can experience this myself to understand it myself. That's what I have to do. I can't just have blind belief, which right. is the problem with a lot of those teachers is they also insisted on blind belief because mm. that's how they had control. Mm. Yeah. And that caused all kinds of disastrous things. Yeah. Okay, I've got a question here that Rebecca had me write down. This is her question, and I'll see if I can articulate it the way she wanted to ask it. So she is curious about... There are people who say, my form of meditation is X, and that could be painting or walking in nature or cooking or some other activity. And she's basically wondering if that counts towards practice. And I have the answer that I've tried to give her, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on people who haven't quite resonated with formal practice, but they do other activities and they kind of call that their their meditation. Do you have any thoughts on, on that? Mm, difficult question. Um, Cause on one level, yeah. I mean, I you know, I, you know, I paint, right? But when I paint, I paint in a very precise, still, calm space. And I always think of my time I spend painting as practice. Mm. But that's in the context of a much larger practice container that I live in, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I think people who say those sorts of things and don't have a formal practice are um, there's nothing wrong with them. They're not food, but they're, they don't understand the value of formal practice. Mm. They don't understand what it means to really step back from life completely uh, as we do on retreat 
and and live this incredibly simple life where we have no distractions at all. Um, and that's okay. I mean, I'm sure that these are virtuous, good people. This the other thing I, about this practice, or this these sorts of practices in the broad sense. This is, these aren't for everybody, and certain people are attracted to them. Certain people find their value, but other people, it's not in their makeup, mental makeup, their emotional makeup, whatever. Their, their life, because their life is so complicated, perhaps. So it's not like, oh, what's wrong with those people? They should be meditating and sitting like I sit. But it's different. Those, those forms of practice, hiking, painting, you know, sitting, watching the sunset, which is, can be quite meditative, uh, are all wonderful things. Um, but they are different than formal practice. Yeah, thank you for that. That's that's great. And um, yeah, something Rebecca's mom does. She's a Christian. She wakes up at um, early in the morning and does very deliberate prayer when she wakes up. And I've always thought that was really cool. And I think that's um, practice. Yeah, exactly. So I think there's something about really taking um, a break and I guess you want to call it renunciating and deliberately practicing that offers something else um, than the, the the continuous activity. But the other the other side of that is um, the boundaries between formal practice and life can get rigid and have been rigid in points of my practice too. So yeah. having formal practice, because you hear people say that like too, yeah, my like life is practice, like, like you mentioned, it's there's no real separation. But I've heard people who don't think there's value to sitting in silence or having the discipline of sitting in silence once a day, say things like, well, my life is my practice and I'm always practicing. And I've always thought, okay, yeah, but there's something that you're missing if you're not um, taking the time to deliberately, deliberately train or practice in that way. Right. Yes. Right. Um, but practice, formal practice, like you like you're, you're like Rebecca's mother is a great example. This is a very, I mean, very different form of practice, but it is quite clearly being still focusing on something wholesome. This is real practice. So Definitely. we have to also yeah. understand that practice, formal practice takes very, very different forms in different traditions and, you know, Sufi dancing, you know, back in my old hippie days, I come back to, but people, you know, Sufis dance, but it can become a, very profound practice as they're dancing because mm-hmm. it focuses, they use the dance to focus. So it's like, there's lots of ways to do it. It doesn't, you don't have to sit still even, I don't think. Mm. So another question I have is if you have any experience with psychedelics and how you think the psychedelic experience relates to deep insights and meditation practice, or if they can be motivating to, go deeper into the practice. What are your thoughts on the psychedelic experience? Okay, I'm going to tread carefully here. <laughs> um, number one, yes, I have I have a lot of experience with psychedelics from my 20s. Uh-huh. Uh, acid, psilocybin, magic mushrooms, uh, peyote, a lot uh-huh. of pot. 
I was probably stoned pretty much every day for two years. Wow. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. Uh, and at the time, part of that was like very cultural. I belonged to a community, you know, that hippie community. That's what was like the norm. Um, and two things I want to say about it. One is, uh, I think having had those experiences really opened up my heart mind to yeah there's different ways of looking at the world than this somewhat you know when i went off to college and was going to study mathematics and computers i had this very sort of middle class quite rigid view of how life should be hmm. and those experiences shifted that quite profoundly for me and so that's i think it's quite it didn't do me any harm to have have had all those experiences. Mm. On the other hand, <laughs> those all those experiences in the end, you're now you're dependent on this substance to experience something. Mm. And um, that in the end becomes just another dead end. I I realized, you know in my mid twenties, I suppose, but this, this didn't work, you know, on a long-term basis. Number one, all of those things have physical effects on the body that aren't good. I think they're quite harmful as a matter of fact. Um, and so, uh, it's probably been 35, 40 years since I played with those things. And I, so I wouldn't recommend them. I don't think they're a, a are a, a necessity at all for spiritual practice. I don't think depending on them is a spiritual practice, but they can be for someone who <clears throat> has sort of a narrow, straight cultural view of the world, sort of eye-opening mm -hmm. and, and make you, oh, look, this, I, this isn't, what the culture says isn't necessarily true. I can look in a much broader sense at how things mm -hmm. are. And I had some quite profound experiences when I was high on acid and various other forms of psychedelics. But they don't go anywhere. In the end, they're not useful in, mm. in, in the long term. Mm. Have you paid attention to any of the new developments on the, the research and the, you know, in Oregon, my home state, they're now legalizing psilocybin therapy for not only, you know, people with PTSD or deep trauma, but also healthy people who want to explore these things. And some of the research that I've seen on how doing it with a delib with a guide, someone who's trained in a deliberate kind of contemplative setting offers more quote unquote benefits than dropping acid at a music festival, say, not that that can't be very fun. But yeah. have, I'm, one, I'm wondering, <laughs> right, right. but can you, um, have you followed any of that? Or are you interested in any of that uh, research? I know that, uh, I know of it. Um, I was at one point uh, when I was about to go on a long retreat, got a, uh, an email from some researcher in uh, some school at West Harvard or one of those places, I forget exactly where, one of those big prestigious schools who was researching in this area and wanted me to be a participant, like 
after I did my long retreat, I should then come and uh, you know take some psilocybin. I think it was I forget what what the substance was, and they could then measure my brain waves and stuff before and after and see you know how. And I just said no, thanks. Mm. I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm not. I'm saying and, and those uh, you know for for treating certain people and certain things, I could see it might be quite valuable. I don't. I'm not a clinician i'm not a therapist i don't really know but i can see that that might be true and as a and for a, an individual one-off event when you as i said you know for me they they were very eye-opening and i sort of saw the world in a different way and sort of wasn't so bound by the cultural norms it can be very probably be very useful but as a way of continuously practicing i don't think it's useful Okay. Yeah. Thanks for that. I'm curious where you're at with your own, it's just to wrap up here, where you're at with your own meditation practice, what kinds of things you're focused on these days. And I guess how your sits are structured now as compared to they were when you first started practicing in daily sits, are they pretty similar in the structure? Are they vastly different and more advanced now that you've done so many retreats and sat for so many years? I'm just curious about your own daily practice right now. It's pretty much same old, same old, to be honest with you. I mean, right now, like if you ask me, you know, right now, today, the last week or so, because I'm teaching a, an eight-week meta course, I'm practicing meta all the time. I'm not doing any mindfulness practice at all in terms of formal mindfulness practice. Mm. I'm practicing my formal practice is sitting practice doing metta mm. because that's what I'm teaching. And, and it really helps me sort of focus on the teaching of it to be practicing it. Mm. Um, so, uh, and my practice goes back and forth in that way between metta and more formal mindfulness practice. Um, there's two different forms of practice. I've practiced enough in both of them and done long retreats in both of them that see how they're different and how they're, they go to the same place. Mm-hmm. So um, I think more for me, um, my practice in daily life gets deeper all the time. Hmm. And that's what I see as valuable. Hmm. I asked you this, I think the last time we spoke, but when you, talk about practice in daily life, how much of that is effortful versus just seeping into your life based on all of your practice experience? I'm wondering how deliberate you are in noticing when the mind has wandered or when you're lost in thought or when you're distracted or irritated or whatever it is and trying to come back to being present over and over again in daily life, or if it's something that you've just notice arising more often, or if it's some of both? I think it's becomes, at least for me, it's become more like, that's the way I deal with the world. That's the way I, I'm, I'm much more mindful in my day-to-day life than I was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Just, and, and it isn't so much effortful as just the way things are and and i and i think that's one wholesome result of long-term practice Mm. 
is that you it's not like an on off switch it's like i now i'm more often you know when i am in a situation where you know i would have reacted in some unwholesome way now i go oh i see this no i don't have to go there and that's just the way things are i don't i don't i don't have a a clear practice formal practice of practicing my daily life it's just my daily life has become much more the mind the state of my mind in my daily life and the state of my mind when i'm in deep practice is not significantly different anymore hmm. nice and i don't say that in any sort of boastful way it's just that's what i've experienced hmm. no that i mean that's really encouraging to hear that, that's really great and when you sit down for, let's say you were going to do a, um, a more insight style practice, if you were, were not in a meta phase, if you were going to sit down for that style of practice, do you generally just gauge the state of your mind to know how narrow or wide you're going to be in that given sit, whether or not it's going to be just with the breath or noting or open awareness? How do you make that decision on any given sit? <laughs> Sorry. It's like, I can't even really explain that other than that's what I do. It's like, it's more like I sit, I start, I always start with just the breath. Mm -hmm. And then how's it going? Where does it go? I, it's sort of this dynamic process of just working it out and, and where it's like sometimes I, I'll <clears throat> I'll notice, oh, boy, I haven't been able to stay with more than two breaths at a time. Well, maybe I should pay just, you know, more energy to the concentration aspect of it. And sometimes it's like, oh, yeah, this is sort of feeling pretty good and I'm staying with the breath and things are flowing along and I sort of open it up and start paying attention to the underlying process. And, but there's no, I have no rules about it or no plan on any particular day to, for it to be one thing or another. You, you just, you sit and see what's happening. Yeah. Okay. I wish that's I could question. give you, I wish <laughs> I could give you a hard and fast set of rules and procedures, but that's what we have. That's part of, <laughs> The practice, you know, part of having, you learn to be, have skillful practice. And that's part of skillful practice is to be aware of what's happening and then adjust your practice based on what's happening. Yeah, no, that, that is helpful. Thank you. One more question. Um, this is something I've been meaning to ask, actually. So there is a certain spirit within the contemplative community amongst some people, I guess like Alan Watts comes to mind when he talks about, he kind of criticizes the notion of you need to sit for X amount of minutes. And if you sit down, you should have a timer going. Um, and he talks about, well, if a cat sits, does a cat count how long it's sitting for and wait till the, 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 the timer goes off? I'm, I'm, and I, I've noticed in my own daily practice, I'll set a timer for say 30 minutes and by minute 22, 23, I'll start to notice some impatience and restlessness arising. And on my good days, I'll just sit and be mindful of that. But on my, you know, on other days, I will 
react to that and get up before the timer goes off. What do you think, how do you think about the value of that kind of discipline of sitting and waiting for the timer to go off? I mean, it's something that on retreat, you just have no choice because the the aversion and the restlessness starts to come up and you peek one eye open to see, oh my God, he hasn't hit the bell yet. It's, it feels like it's been an hour. Um, <laughs> but in daily life, it's easy just to get up. So how do you think about that dynamic? Okay. In general, don't get up. Okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, basically, you, you decide at the beginning, I'm going to sit for 30 minutes, and that's what you do. And, mm. But, and here's the flip side of that, is you're, it's, you, know, you, you notice, oh, look, you know, the, or the timer goes off. I don't actually have a physical timer. I have a clock, and I sort of peek at it. Mm-hmm. I sort of, you get to the point where you know, oh, that's pretty much half an hour, and you look, and sure enough, it's 28 minutes or something. Mm. But you don't have to get up at the end of those 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. You can, it's like, oh, this, I'm feeling fine. I'm not restless. Let's just hang out here. And you mm-hmm. stay, maybe it's two minutes longer, maybe it's an hour longer. Who knows? So it's not like, don't be limited on the backside, right? Oh, I said I was going to sit for half an hour, half an hour is up. That's it. So sometimes, like as you say, it's like, oh my God, I'm going crazy here. Maybe I should get up and you know do something else. Mm. But try to always not cut it short because mm. that's lack of discipline. And this is a discipline. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That's part that's, of renunciation is being disciplined. Yeah. I like the idea of not immediately getting up at 30 or at whenever you set the timer to, because you're supposed to, I feel like if I were to start sitting longer than the timer, when I feel like it, that would re um, emphasize the fact that I'm not sitting as like a chore. It's not something to get through. It's, it's not something to get over with. It's like something you enjoy and it's part of your life. And so, yeah, that's interesting. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Well, last, just to sign off here, how can people, if anyone's interested in getting in touch with you or doing your online sits on Thursday nights or subscribing to your newsletter, what's the best way, what's the best way for people to find you on the internet? Probably the best way is to go to my website, uh, is in Harold Gillespie, G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E. So it's just barryhgillespie.com. That's okay. where all my stuff is. And that and, and there is contact information there in terms of well, you know, an email address and that sort of stuff if people want to email me. Uh, but the best way to find me is to go into the World Wide Web and, and look at that web particular website. Okay. And I will also link to that in the, in the notes of the episode so you can oh, find the you. link below. And yeah, well, well, Barry, it's always a pleasure. Really, thank you for taking the time to do this. I love talking to you. I really appreciate it a lot. So thank you. Uh, okay. I look forward to hearing the edited version of this. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, it'll come out before too long. So thank you, Barry. Okay. Good. Bye, Billy. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the podcast. My book, Harder Than I Thought, Easier Than I Feared, Sports, Anxiety, and the Power of Meditation is about playing sports and meditation 
and how those two things can blend in a pretty cool way for a young athlete. So if you know an athlete or a coach or a parent of an athlete, you should consider picking up a copy. You can find a link to the book in the show notes, or you can visit billyhanson.net forward slash book. Other ways to support me in the show is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and also to share it with someone who you think might like it. To stay in contact with my work, you can visit billyhanson.net forward slash newsletter. Get on my email list where I send out updates on new stuff. Thank you again for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. And I will see you here for the next episode. It's the sauce.